Hello, welcome to the Noel Fielding episode of Josie and Robin's Book Shambles. If you are new to Book Shambles, just to tell you, we record and normally put up a new episode every single week with all manner of people from uh, the comedian Stuart Lee, the astronaut Chris Hadfield, the filmmaker and comedian Alice Lowe, uh, A.L. Kennedy and many, many more. And at the moment we're also recording extended versions and those extended versions go especially to our Patreon supporters. You can support us via Patreon for just $1 per episode and it means we can keep making more. But here in its entirety for free is the Noel Fielding episode of Josie and Robin's Book Shambles. Hello, welcome to uh, Robin and Josie's Book Shambles. We had a very interesting preamble conversation which has been cut by the starling of this podcast, Josie Long. It was wild, wild times in this tiny studio. But now we have to learn a lot about Josie. (laughs) This quiet, benevolent, charming, Ealing film style take on books from 1943. And uh, our guest today is uh, the singer and dancer, Noel Fielding, (laughs) which is how I know you best uh it's weird really life isn't it because me and you <laughs> didn't hang out for 10 years no. we used to do quite a lot of gigs together no. um in a Randy boom boom i remember you once <gasps> brought yeah robin once that place. once brought on me and julian and said i don't know what they're gonna do because we were putting sort of um we were putting uh false sort of like yucca plants around the pub trying to create some sort of we were going to do a, a scene where we were in the jungle so we just put two sort of potted plants down <laughs> and Robin went I don't know what they're going to do they're probably going to do a sketch about you know a, an elf who lives in a forest who eats dance music <laughs> and me and Julie looked at each other and thought that's quite good we'll have that <laughs> we still haven't adapted that but I feel, I feel, I feel an elf who eats dance music is incredible the um what that that's something that we were talking about we, we've just done as we explained to Josie this kind of uh, musical with Eric Idle and Brian Cox which yeah. comes out at Christmas well we got hired you... for our dancing skills right? and, yeah, and our singing I, skills I had, I had one dance which was actually just doing the Morecambe and Wise uh, kind of move but unfortunately <laughs> due to my sciatica it's very difficult to get my right arm that far back I played I an elf who eats dance music you weren't far off an elf that, pl- that, that ate, ate dance who eats music gabba. Right? <laughs> <laughs> um. The, um, but you, you were saying when we were that when kind of the bush was still doing the uh, gigs on the circuit, or Julian and you the in 60s. some, some this incarnation, was the 60s. yeah. When when you were playing the Rainbow, of course, very famously. Um, <laughs> the uh, but at that point, there would be people who would introduce you, or not really under you know that we were talking about the problems of surrealism yes. or absurdism. Yeah, that it when the... putting together certain words, there are those who, if not adept at it, are adept at the process of arriving at that linking. Yes, of course. Um, I talk about this a lot with Bob Mortimer. Me and Julian got quite fed up of trying to follow very mundane stand-up in the circuit, you know, on the circuit. So we ended up just going, let's go to the Hen and Chickens and, you know, stay there. Let's squat. Let's <laughs> just stay there every Monday. Monday was like the graveyard slot. We did do quite a lot of things by accident. Well, we didn't know. We were quite naive. But then people started thinking, oh, let's do what the Bush did. Like we did Monday nights at, Arangi, at uh, Hen and Chickens, which was just deathly. In the beginning, there was like seven people there. And then once we'd done that for five years and once we sort of got nominated for Perry and things, people started going, we need that Monday night slot of the Hen and Chickens. <laughs> like that had anything to do. And then um, we also did a six o'clock show when we first did our 
first ever show in Edinburgh, which was horrendous. It's when everyone is eating or having a break. It's from not shows. horrendous now, but it, now, but it was. But then. it was then. I agree. Very it's quiet. One of, yeah, really. yeah, we, we heard everyone going. We got to get that six o'clock slot. That six o'clock slot's like gold dust. <laughs> Me and Julian were like, there were no other slots. That's why we did it. Because <laughs> the midday <laughs> slot is now seen as the yes, uh, but there's the prize slot. But people do that with the with um, venues as well. They're like, yeah. last year in that free fringe venue, there were two shows that were nominated, and it's like. I think it was the show. Yeah, it might have been the show. <laughs> might not have been See, the I... fact there's a pillar in the way of the stage in <laughs> the, the magic awards pillar. I, I knew some people who said, do you know what Eddie Izzard's secret was? It was that he, not to do telly, so I'm not going to do telly. Yeah. And you go, no, 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 his secret was that he worked really hard and turned himself into someone that was fascinating to watch. No one went, um, do you know, we should he use did go more on often. telly quite and often. And also he went on telly. telly. That's <laughs> the other great thing. He, he did the, um, the hysteria benefit. He did yeah. the just for laughs thing. And what he did was every time he went on telly, in certainly the first three, and then there's a comic relief appearance where he's come straight for the ambassadors, where the that. whole audience kind of... He, it's that difficult thing, which I imagine everyone here has experienced, which is if you spend, on whatever scale, if you're predominantly performing to people who have some knowledge of what you do, yes. when you're then placed in an arena where people are unaware, you forget that, oh, this doesn't work at all. No, <laughs> you know, that true. bit. So, so Eddie walked on, and I think he started doing some stuff about how he'd come out as a transvestite. But with a level of awareness that the audience would go, I said, and and they would kind of go, no, we're the comic relief audience that come in at midnight. Yeah. Hey, where's the cast of a lower low? <laughs> oh, I'm in a dress. And it was, yeah, it was kind of. That's it was the odd. weird thing about the process of stand up, because when I do my tours now, I tailor all my material for people who come to see me because they like what I do. Yeah. And I remember Frank Zappa talking about that, saying, I, I have a very specific audience and I don't care if you don't like what I do, just don't come, but just don't waste your time telling me about it. Like, there's plenty of other bands, go and see the birds, whoever, whoever on the list. Don't waste your time telling me you're not into what I do. I have a very specific fan base and I, I make music for them. And that is kind of what happens. Once people decide they like what you do, they will come and see it. They know roughly what you do, so you don't have to worry so much. And then you do, as you say, a charity gig when it's not your crowd or a festival, and you go, none of this makes any sense because the context is slightly different. Or well, there's just you... a slight sort of thing where you have to do material that's more general, which you haven't been doing because you've been doing more specific things. That you, you know, because you can take more liberties when it's your own audience and do more interesting stuff. I don't know if I can... But you, we don't have to talk about this, but when you that suddenly reminded me <laughs> Oh. Great start. Oh, my when, God. What's he going to no, say? It's the time that Peter Kay was comparing the Royal Albert Hall. He's not a generous oh, yeah. compare, though. Come at me. Come at me. No, he, he's... Yeah, yeah, you're right. He's not... Boom! <laughs> As a compare, I always think that if you go, don't worry, I'll be back soon, but I've got to bring on an act now, oh. is one of the most... You know, when I was 17 like, and I was doing comedy competitions, he said to me, is there anything you don't want me to say? And I said, please, can you not say that I'm still at school because it's too weird for people when I Because my parents might hear about <laughs> But then the first thing he said was, she's still at school. And I was like, you fuck you said what do you would not say there might never have been forgive, some DJs in the audience and it was a warning there was a couple of DJs in the audience she's still at school a bit you know, off colour there a bit of off colour humour from Robin Ince there what? is that off colour I don't know so that but can we talk about that or not that bit of, of where that was quite a yeah. weird night, wasn't it? It was a weird night, actually, because it was going quite well. I've done. Also, I'm an ambassador for Teenage Cancer Trust, so I've done it like maybe twelve to, or ten times or something. So you know, it's sort of a weird. It's a weird thing to do if you're comparing it just one year and you start attacking 
someone who supports that charity for 10 so years. So what did he do? <laughs> We're just like, I sort of was doing a gig and it was going quite well. And then someone heckled me right before a punchline. It was quite oh, long, you know, as you all know, well, both of you. It, sometimes you take, you know, a while to get to a, a payoff and it's a long setup. So if someone does ruin that payoff, you're a little bit stranded. Yeah like a while um, and it was just before someone shouted and I sort of couldn't get it oh, it was a nightmare but then, yeah, it was okay in the end I managed to get it but then Peter Kay came on I can't remember what he did but he said something disparaging um, which I just thought was quite mean because you know when you're comedians it's sort of you against the audience really I mean you know you're supposed to support your fellow comedians I would never dream of doing that um, I think as far as I remember it was a kind of What's that all about then? You know yeah. that bit where the compare goes on and basically says, just so rude. you know, don't worry. I'm like, yeah, and it is a. He misjudged it though, actually, because what happened was I'd been friends a little bit with Roger Daltrey, who helps run that charity, yeah. and, and his son. Um, and uh, Paul Weller was there as well. There's a lot of mods who I was friends with in the <laughs> so green room fight him on who the were really angry and they were well as like if he comes near I'm going to chin him <laughs> so I had like a lot of mods ready to punch him but he didn't <laughs> come in he didn't come mods. in because you know he just sort of <laughs> the, uh... <laughs> that might need cutting out <laughs> oh yeah I'll tell you what yeah can you just make a note just cut that last bit and, and we'll, we'll, <laughs> we'll talk about that off air so we'll Help. Oh, yeah, we don't, we don't keep going oh on about it. It's now God. a longer cut. Now it's a three-sentence cut. It's not cut. live, is it? <laughs> oh, God, I could tell. Yeah, no, no, because then you'll start me on someone else. And the, um, Ooh, so who else? Oh. Shut up, Josie. Can't we just blank um, out the names? Bleep, bleep. What, like Child's Play? Bleep. Every time that... Do you remember Child's Play? What, the horror film about not the Not Child's Play, the horror film. Child's Play where children would try and give the definition of things without saying the word. I do remember that. Every time they said the word, it would go bleep. Oh, and, then, yeah. and then people would have to guess it in the studio. Is that, yeah. Did Bill Cosby so, do that first in America? Ooh, oh, well, don't make it worse. Right, so let's oh, move on. Let's that? move on. This whole thing's an absolute disaster of a conversation. Um, <laughs> Thanks start so again. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks so much for doing the podcast. <laughs> Thanks Brilliant, Josie. You really got we're, that back we're on here to. We love uh, talking about books. Yes. That's what we've got you here for. I love books. Well, this is my a... favourite books are pop-up books. Are they? I would like to do a, my memoirs as a pop-up. There's a book. brilliant book called The Pop-Up Book of Phobias. Have you ever oh, seen that? No, but I do, and it I'm obsessed with pop-up books. Really delightfully done, really intricate. Mm. And uh, and it is properly, it's just various different yeah. definitions of certain phobias. And then as you Peanuts open that page, and what the phobic thing comes directly at you. Well, that's not good, is it? <laughs> well, no, you, you've been warned. You know it's a book of phobias. It's right. your own fault if you go, do you know what? I bet my phobia's not in here. <laughs> well, it's your own fault. You've if you've got a phobia of, of pop-up books, then maybe you'd be fine because you wouldn't go near it in the first place. Yeah. Well, I, th- I think you'd it's be... In there. Yeah, when this will be enough. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Um, the, do you like uh, it because of the engineering? What do you like um, about pop-up books? I had a book called The Haunted House. When I was, did you? Have that yes. Book? Who? What's Yan, the name? Yes. yes. Yeah, I remember that. Jan, what's Jan Piankowski. Yes, that's it. And I was obsessed with that book when I was a kid, to the point that I um, started trying to engineer my own pop-up books. I was, I guess it's because I was more into the drawing and the pictures than yeah. the writing. I was slightly dyslexic and I was really good at painting. So um, it was less about the words, more about the pictures, I suppose, when I was quite young. And I just, as a kid, I suppose now with technology as it is, maybe that wouldn't be so impressive. But the simple things <laughs> when you're a kid, like flick books and pop-up books, yeah. used to blow your mind when you were at school. I mean, you know, it wasn't really 
an age where you could get on the internet and see all kinds of magical CGI treats. No. It was literally, have you seen this book? <laughs> it comes at you. I can move well, the eyes. <laughs> someone was saying about the podcast that I do, and they said, you know, do you deliberately do the kind of, you know, you're very analogue. You deal with a past world because I do. I do podcasts about music, which is like from the old days. I mean, it's not old music; it's contemporary music we've made now. But the very idea of music. Sometimes I might. They might even hear me, you know, taking out a piece of vinyl, which apparently is very fashionable now. Um, and then books. That, the idea that that's considered now to be this kind of old analog thing. Books. Oh yes, books. I remember those. Oh, I don't. I mean, I am obsessed with books because I like. I like to have something in my hand, really. I like to hold a book. I find it hard to read off a screen. Me too. I don't know why. Maybe that's just me. Maybe because I'm a bit dyslexic. But I, mm, if I get sent a script, I have to get my agents to print it out for me. Yeah. I, I cannot learn it if it's on the screen. It doesn't I, feel official to me. No, if it's if so, uh, the idea harsh. of reading a book on like a, on an iPad. Yeah. Would it would feel like you didn't really read it though? <laughs> you were just looking at something. Yeah, you skimmed it. Yeah, and yeah. you can't draw in it with a pen. I know you could no. like put a note on it. You can't highlight the screen. No, well you can, but like, it's not the same. <laughs> I think <laughs> there is drawing. a different engagement. I genuinely, I, I totally agree. I think there is an engagement when you are holding a book. There is. It may be because yeah. of from generation that will disappear in the next couple of generations. Yeah. But on the pop up thing, by the way, one of my favourites that I found a couple of years ago in a charity shop, which just was the M C Escher pop up book. You're going to say MC Hammer, then. <laughs> the, the, <laughs> Which uh, could have been good. Um, the, uh, wow. but, uh, I just I, did a film called Set the Thames on Fire where the backgrounds were a little bit like sort of Escher. What was that background. about? It's a sort of an apocalyptic tale of two guys in London. The Thames had flooded and it was sort of in, uh, set in the future. And sort of they were trying to escape, but um, yeah, it was quite bleak. But it was quite funny. Sally Phillips was in it. Oh, amazing. David Hoyle. Do you know David Hoyle? Yeah. The Divine David. Yeah. Yeah, it was quite a good fun, actually. But the backgrounds were very sort of Asher and stylized. The Divine David, I always... He's quite different in those two yeah. I- incarnations. Is he's actually a fantastic actor. Yeah, but that's what I think... Of. As well I think as when I've seen him acting, comedian. he's been really different. To be it's honest, when we got nominated for the Perrier as proper, the main one, the Arctic Boosh, my favourite show that year was the Divine David show. I what? just thought it was heads... Heads and I thought it was head and shoulders above any comedians that had been nominated. Yeah. I was like, this is much more interesting, much more avant-garde, much more spontaneous, much more visual. Mm. But because it was sort of a scary, slightly drag zombie Liza Minnelli, it was sort of put into a different category. Do you know yeah. what I mean? And it was also sort when of the... seen as a, I don't know. I mean, I just kind of used to go to that show and think, this is more interesting than the stuff that's getting nominated. Yeah. And his Christmas shows now that he does at Soho Theatre. Yeah. Which again are quite because he is someone that you know, however much he's, he's been made up or whatever man. garb he's in, when you just look into the eyes, you go, You're a man who has some stories. Oh, this, yeah. this is someone with tales to he's tell. Lived. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I painted a portrait of him on a bin bag and left it for him, and he was absolutely sort of, um, he couldn't believe that someone had done that. He was like, Oh, he was like, No, he's painted a portrait of me on a bin bag, that was beautiful. And whenever I still used to see him after that, he's like, I've still got that, you know. And he's an artist as well. So we sort of became friends after that. And then it was nice that we did this film together because I knew we'd meet again. You know, when you sort of like someone, you have a connection with someone. It's a bit like you I'm sh- You don't have to worry because you always do somehow find each other again. Yeah. And then people are like... Ha! 
Yeah. <laughs> right, because <laughs> the uh, <laughs> kids say the funniest thing. At any moment like... of what appeared to be white noise or John Cage during this broadcast <laughs> are merely us whispering under the microphones before returning to them. The, um, <laughs> the thing I was going to say about the MC Escher pop-up book, and there's another one now. This I had one for yes. quite a while back. This, uh, is, what's fascinating is, of course, it doesn't work. Because the whole point of M.C. Escher is to create these two-dimensional interpretations of a three-dimensional world exactly. that doesn't work. So when they pop up... They are three-dimensional. No, but it's still... And I think that's why they've obviously made more pop-up books. Is One, people go, that's quite a tricky thing. And, and of course, it breaks yeah. really quickly. By the th- you know, Sometimes the first opening, it's broken, partly because you're breaking the laws of the universe, <laughs> at, at least at the scale that we're yes. working at. But another lovely pop-up book, just to turn to those, is there's one of the Large Hadron Collider. Oh. And that one is, and it is quite hard to open because it's really, you know, just. But, but it's also, a if you thing. mess that up, you ruin the entire universe, as everyone knows. Yeah, yeah. And then so, you'd have Professor Cox on your back. So you may well, with the MC Escher one, you accidentally end up in an Ian McEwan story, something like Solid Geometry. It's an absolute disaster. <laughs> um, <laughs> we, I was going to like, I was going to go straight in and be like, what, what have you brought, and what do you uh, love to read? Well. Um, I brought in a Richard Broskin book because I like Richard Broskin. You like Richard Broskin. I do, yeah. Yeah. What I like about Richard Broskin is that he was one of those that I'd never heard of till quite late on. Um, And, you know, I don't know if he's a beat writer or not. He always gets lumped in with the beat writers. He's not really. He's sort of more weird and whimsical and out on his own. Um, That's a weird thing, though. The beat writers thing is because actually the real proper mainstream beat writer or whatever you want to call it, uh, every time you read, you read another story about them, you go, Oh, yeah. Oh dear. Oh no, these people aren't nice. No. And then some of them, are, and th- th- there's a level of arrogance. But then you have these other people who kind of do get loved. Well, like William Burroughs would be the yeah. most obvious one, who's kind of placed in that merely because of sometimes geographical proximity yes. and historical and proximity. I'm but not his work is percent sure he's a classic I, beat writer. I wouldn't he? say at all. I mean, apart from you might who is? say something Kerouac, like junkie or queer. Yeah, was and then you probably have Kerouac. I suppose Lawrence oh, Furling Getty yes. and his stuff. I'm not trying to be rude, but oh my god, On the Road is like the most overrated book in the history of all books. I remember being like Underworld. so, yes, so yeah, monumentally disappointed. When but I not being able it. to penetrate like Naked Lunch when I was 13, just going, I don't, I don't know what's happening. Yeah, yeah. Why I is this like brain this for this? Yeah. yeah, my brain hasn't evolved enough to understand what's happening. Is that because we're seeking? Because that's what I sometimes think with David Lynch films and 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 similar genre things. Whereas because as human beings we desperate to try and go what does this mean yeah sometimes you don't go do you know what let's just have a ride let's just no. see and at the end i might come out with something yeah but if i constantly go hang on a minute why is he doing that and what why is she that no no, no no enjoy it let's just and i think naked lunch is a book that i go back to quite a lot yeah me because too. it gets referenced by so many wonderful people so you think and then you go back be. and you go no there is something it's uh, like a captain beefheart album a little bit where if you try and get into trout mask replica it's probably not your the best way to approach Captain Beefheart, probably should listen to Safe as Milk and then. Sort of See, I wouldn't. Know. I, I think Trout Mask Replica is because if I you love start Trout Mask Replica, as... but I think maybe ten listens before you you start penetrating and it comes into focus. It is like a camera lens. You're trying to sort of focus it. It was like when the New Duran and Newsome album came out, and the first time I heard it, I was like, oh, but I don't love this as much as I love to have one on me. I can't bear to be alive. And then it was like, let's oh, no, keep trying. And then by the fifth one, I was like, oh, this is just but as you, good. I, that's my whole thing about art now is that, or whatever, TV, comedy, film, anything. Do we have the patience now to actually, um, unless we 
we're real fans um, of some someone already. Do we have that pay, the patience anymore to go? I already get this. I'm going to give it another go. I already get this. I'm going to give it another go. I, I get this. I'm going to give it another I go. Really, because people tend to sort of go. I watched five minutes of that, and then I wasn't really interested. And well, it's like the Sherlock Holmes at Christmas, which I've banged no. on about before. Which really a number of people went. I don't even know what's going on. And I went, it's because you're tweeting about it's it. because you've got your phone in yeah. your hand. Stop, watch it. Watch it. I mean, I don't even know who she is. That's because she turned up in the scene when you were going, I don't like this Sherlock Holmes. And, and I, found, I mean, I, I went to see, uh, I know a film that you oh, like. No. In fact, we talked about it last week, but I went to see Man Who Sold the World on the big screen, yes. which I'd never seen before on the big screen. Yes. And I have to admit, I still think it's Man Who too... Fell to Earth. Yeah. Yeah, you said I Man s- Who Sold the World. Oh, Man Who Sold the World. Idiot. Yeah, that's, that's, that's that on the big screen. <laughs> and it's just a man <laughs> holding a piece of vinyl and then he changed from the cover of putting Bowie the, on the couch. Putting to doing the world in loot, which it was wasn't rubbish. even his to do so. I know. Um, <laughs> no, I but went the wrong screen. Um, but I agree. Nicholas Rogue films, I think probably you should see them on the big screen because they're beautiful. Like or, or Kubrick or any of those things yeah. where you go, well, it talk- does, because that relationship, yeah. when, a, when someone like, you know, that when a filmmaker like that is making a film, they're not imagining either you're watching it while getting uh, on a your drink phone. on a plane. <laughs> they're not imagining they're, they're going. This is and I, like I said, this I still have a live a orchestra and you should yeah. be in, and you know an IMAX cinema. I know. But I, I never even really noticed how horrific it is. Those scenes where various different young women are holding Rip Torn's penis and saying it's not like their fathers. Yeah. Now Ooh. on the small screen, you kind of can dismiss that, but on the big screen, you go, "I don't want to see Rip Torn's penis that many times being talked about in a kind of <laughs> incestuous Freudian That's manner." That's the only reason I went. Yeah, I know. Rip Torn's penis. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you're right though. I think that maybe the way that you receive um, art or whatever it is, an idea, is quite important. And a book is... A, there was a programme about um, conceptual artists on last night, and there was a guy that just uses text, and he puts up these sort of weird billboards and lights them up and stuff. And he says when people read things, they have to pause to read them. You know, they're not visual images. When you see a poster or a billboard, it's a visual. You just sort of look at it for a second and you're gone. But if it's words, you have to actually go... You know, and that's the same with a book. You have to pick it up, open it. Oh, where was I? Have I read this bit? Read a bit. You know, if, you, if there's been a gap between reading story you know you read up to chapter seven you have to reread a little bit just to refresh your memory of what you were reading about mm. if you read in bed like me and fall asleep every single time <laughs> um but i think maybe the way that we are taking it in needs to be slowed down sometimes like when you go to the cinema now there's literally seven thousand cuts per second mm. and it's like how much information can we take it's like That's what, what- what are we doing? <laughs> no, but I got really angry at Mad Max Fury Road, which I can see is like a wonderful achievement, but it was like a yeah. car chase from the get-go it was that like never a trailer ended. That never ended. Yeah, and I was just like, oh, I, I'm so loud. Just sit still it. for a second. So yeah, loud. so loud. That's my right. thing. It's like sounds coming at you from all over the shop. I don't normally like loud. I like slow and boring with waterfalling <laughs> distance. But I found Mad Max Fury Road, and especially now because you can watch online, they've yes. got, you know, see what uh, Mad Max Fury Road looked like before it all had the treatment of CGI. And it's not to show up the fact that it's nothing. They go, it's nearly the same. It's right. loads of things going really fast and people hanging about, and it's bloody remarkable. Wow. And that that was one where I thought... It just felt honest. Sometimes I find I don't watch many action films. Like yeah. when we had Jeff Dyer on this, Jeff Dyer said, you know, he can't go to the cinema. He has to go in the moment the film starts because the trailers have exhausted him already yeah. because films themselves, as you were saying, are like a perpetual trailer. 
Yes. But Mad Max Fury Road, I just thought... It's like, have you seen Ghostbusters, the new Ghostbusters? Not the new one yet, no. I mean, the people in it, all the women are really good, and it's great that it's women, but then sort of Dan Aykroyd and Bill Murray are in it, and the other Ghostbusters doing cameos, but they're not playing the Ghostbusters. It sort of doesn't make any sense. It's like they should be their granddads or dads or something and said, oh, we were Ghostbusters, and, you know, they should find their old lab or, you know, their stuff in, mm. in the garage, their sort of, you know equipment and then sort of go oh we should be ghostbusters you know it doesn't make any sense like dan Aykroyd's a cab driver but it's like we've just got to get him in we've got to reference him and then like there's old monsters new monsters there's a stay puff man just before they do the actual big monster and you, go, you don't need a monster just before the monster it's a hat on a hat as eric idol says it's like there's so many ideas it's like a test to see if you took in the ten thousand ideas rather than you know seven good ones mm. like, what... we haven't got that we haven't got that many good ones we have got 50 million Small ones, just take them all. I don't know. It's weird. It's well, like that's what Simon Ings fire. was. We had Simon Ings, the the the, the writer on this, and uh, he was talking about the fact that certain books that don't translate to the screen. Mm. He said because there are writers like J.G. Ballard who sometimes will merely say that the door is 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 slightly open, and then it's up to us to decide what is behind that door. But we go fucking hell, that door's slightly open. Whereas film goes, and guess what's behind it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Let me show you. These things. And as, you know, we go back to Hitchcock all the time, but the less you show, really, there's nothing more powerful than the human imagination. So the more you show, it is diminishing returns in the end, because as I just found out in my last series, you cannot provide all of the imagery for other people's imaginations. It's just simply not possible. So you're better off trying to maybe uh, set something in the real world and then put one weird element in and do it in a way where you slightly conceal it and there's a lot of build-up and you just show it for a few seconds. Whereas I just tried to make a show where there were 70 different worlds, 70 different characters, and tried to provide all that imagery. But it's not the same imagery that the people... When you do a radio show, everyone imagines where you are and yeah. they imagine it in their own way and they love that, like the goons or whatever, mm. you know. I always think the Would you return to on... radio or you're not prepared to take that kind of wage cut? It's difficult, <laughs> isn't it? I mean, I thought the best show the boost did was the radio show by a long shot, but, is which that? is ridiculous for me because I'm an art student and I would draw the characters that were going to be on the radio and Julian would go, you do know it's radio. <laughs> I know, but I have to see them in order to be able to play them. Um, because I think that maybe when you listen to the radio show, there's like a sort of as a porpoise derby like sort of where the zookeepers are riding porpoises yeah. underwater and then the spirit of jazz comes to julian as he's fallen off the porpoise underwater now that's quite a tricky soundscape to build but you can build it yeah. um but you could never do that on telly not on a bbc budget so it's sort of one of those things where you just show him wet he's just been to the porpoise where he's got a jockey shirt on and flippers yeah you know and he talks about it which is fine but in a way you can do so much more it because people shut just down go the there. Sorry. Yeah, exactly. That's like, it's that thing of like, before you write something, it yeah. could be everything. And then once you write something, you commit to a yes. fixed idea. Yeah. And then with the radio, yeah, it actually doesn't shut down no. a lot of it in the way that if you're visualising, it's like, well, that's what that looks like then. That's no. who that is. Well, There's also, a great line. Have you ever read Joyce Carey's The Horse's Mouth or seen the film? No. The film was, it was actually adapted by Alec Guinness. And yeah. he stars as Gully Jimpson. And Gully Jimpson is this painter who was kind of revered and now he's just he everything he makes he, he whenever he sees a wall if it's the right wall he wants to paint on it and there's a beautiful scene where basically he takes over someone's house while they're away these really rich people and destroys it and then yeah. creates this enormous tableau of feet and just as he turns away from the tableaus he's about to leave he goes why doesn't it come out like it is in here 
and he just holds his head. And I think that is, it's one yeah. of the great, that might be a misquote, but it's the basic quote is, why can I not take what is in my head? I know what I want it to look like. And that's, yeah. that's the great problem of, of, sound of all like. art. And that's what Liam Avers in the Lars said, that he just couldn't get what he had in his head out. And so he ended up buying 60s equipment and he ended up buying 60s equipment with 60s dust on it. And he went mad, basically. But I think with comedy, it's the speed of the comedy. It's um, how quickly you can convey an idea. And sometimes then the details don't really matter. You know, you sort of say something fast enough. People sort of with you, they make that leap and then they don't. You don't have to actually show it. You don't have to actually go, this is how this works. Because people then go, mm, I'm not sure about that. I mean, there's a great Spike Milligan joke in one of the Goons episodes where um, they're walking through the desert, and Eddie and someone else, and he says, there's a house, and then I think, I think it's Eccles goes into the house, and then um, he basically lands at Neddy's feet, and he goes, what happened? And he goes, it was just a mirage, and he goes, well, why did you land at my feet? He goes, I was upstairs when it disappeared. <laughs> an amazing joke, that is, but how the hell would you show that unless it's on Tom and Jerry? Mm. You know, it's the speed of that. Like, you don't really have time to imagine the whole house, imagine him going upstairs, you know, and then it disappearing. You could do that in a cartoon, possibly, but it's so brilliant, the speed of that. It's such a, well, like, you know, him saying Neddy dried himself off to save time as he swam to shore. It's just so, the imagery comes in. It's the way that the imagery's, imagery's given to you. It's sort of in order and it's so quick. It's like two seconds and you go and you get a little pop and it's amazing. Yeah, it's a little delightful thing. Yeah, and you can do that in a different way with visual jokes, but I think it's much harder and much more expensive. Yeah. And I think you end up showing a few visuals and then talking about a lot of stuff. Yes, really? having a, like a voiceover over the top. Like I can yeah. imagine that working as like yeah. a little shot of someone <laughs> swimming with the joke said above it. Yeah, know? exactly, yeah. So who were the, when, when you were, I mean, you, you were saying that you have some uh, dyslexia when you were a child in the pop-up books, but... I don't know if I had dyslexia or if I just had a, I went to a terrible school, you know, because by the time I went to art college, my teacher said to me, uh, he's quite a good famous artist now he said you've got really great ideas and stuff but you can't spell your grammars all over the shop um i just don't think i had a very uh, good school i wasn't that interested enough and i don't think they cared enough you know it was difficult as a lot of people kids in the class and blah, you know whatever so they just concentrated on what you were good at which was art and you know whatever were, you, were, were the books that you were that have have inspired you though in terms of your own creativity or, or is it a separate thing i think i got bored of that and then i think when i went to art school i just read everything i could find and i got into reading i read a lot when i was a little kid as well because i was a sort of only child when i was about eight or nine so you just do read a lot and you draw a lot and you make stuff up a lot in your head and then when you have a my brother came along, who I love, he's amazing. But it's a different thing. When there's two of you, you just mess around the whole time. It's like, you know, being in a Marx Brothers film. There's no real time for, oh, I'm going to invent a world, you know, or a map. I, to, I was quite obsessed with The Hobbit and Star Wars and Sinbad and all these weird inventing worlds and drawings and writing and stuff and imaginary games. And then when my brother came along, it was, you know, it was like a sort of slapstick film. Yeah, <laughs> I'm busy. No... <laughs> I've got to hit him with a balloon. <laughs> yeah, we're playing a game where we throw tissue boxes at each other's heads. It's sort of a different vibe. So I think I, when I was really young, I read a lot and I got quite good at reading. Um, actually, when I started working with Julian, it was quite useful because his dad was a teacher. So he was very academic. And um, I mean, I was hopeless at spelling and stuff. And then, But then because I got so into it and he would always correct everything I was doing, by the end, I'd start picking him up on stuff grammatically or spelling because I just sort of I was so worried about it I'd really taught myself to you know try and do it and then 
um, like a little quest, a little challenge. But I mean, I loved reading. I read everything when I was at art school, everything I can get my hands on. Well, I don't read now. I try to not read any books. I try to read the, as many classic books as I can because I haven't read enough yet to sort of start going onto books that might be good. Do you know what I mean? That's what I find difficult is sometimes when someone says to me, I've I've just self-published my my book and it's a certain kind. And and there are people I really trust with that. No, and then you think, well, I haven't got onto Voltaire yet. So I doubt I'm going to waste money because I'm not a really quick reader. That's why I stopped reading newspapers and and all that. I I suddenly went, I just spent time reading and none of it's really gone in and some of it made me cross. And really, <laughs> what I should have done is, you know, there, there are books that every year I look at and I go, this will be the year no, when this. I will read the second book in it's, the Remembrance of Things past. It's hard, and, though, because you read, when I discovered Hunter S. Thompson, I loved his style, so I just liked reading his stuff. When I got into Burroughs, I loved his stuff. When I got into Broughton, I loved Broughton. So I just, there's certain stuff that appeals to you, you know, and then there's stuff that you try to read. Like some James Joyce was quite tricky. I would try, you know, and I like some James Joyce, but then, you know, there are things you know you should read that you find really difficult, you know, and classics that you read. And then I also feel guilty when something's too easy. Like I'm like, oh, well, this must not count (laughs) then because I'm loving this. And then then also I... I don't think I'd ever read a book like Brogan's book, though, not with chapters that short, not as poetic as that, not as weird as that. I just, I suddenly went... It's so modern. Yeah, it feels so fresh still. Have you read? Um, I haven't read this one, so we should say which one you brought you in, which is in watermelon sugar. Well, the reason, sorry, I, I just no, it's only just because I wanted to mention that the reason this is I in watermelon brought sugar. that one in is because it was the first one I read, and people have been trying to get me to read trout fishing in America because that's his the famous one. But I guess maybe because it was about trout fishing, I thought oh, I won't like that, but it isn't about trout yeah. fishing, obviously. But I think maybe in watermelon sugar. Just the title alone made me... There's something fascinating about Brotigan because on the cover of all of his books, it's usually himself, which is really rare, and he's usually with quite a beautiful woman, yeah. an enigmatic figure. It's like Leonard Cohen. Yeah, and you suddenly go, who is this guy? And why is he with this woman? And what? That's got nothing to do with the story. But also you can tell he blatantly wanted that. Yeah, Like it's him also going roll, like, that's my brand. Yeah, he's quite rock and roll. But there's something quite odd about him. But then also, then you find out he sort of blew his brains out when he was 50 or something. And that's quite weird. And then you think, oh, no. But then there's something fascinating about that as well. So the whole sort of mythology surrounding him and what he was actually like. Have you read The Abortion and Historical Romance? Yeah, I think I've read them all now, which I'm really gutted. There aren't that many. My last one to get was Willard and his bowling trophies. And I couldn't get it anywhere. And a friend of mine got it for me. And then I was like, shall I read this or save it till I'm 50? (laughs) Because I just thought, I've run out and I've reread them millions of times. I know, but it's not the same. That's what I feel like I'm doing with Kurt Vonnegut. I've got about four that I'm like, I'm not going to read it yet. Because when I do, I've done it all, and then I don't want it. Vonnegut's good as well. I mean, I I think I prefer Brautigan, but I do like Kurt Vonnegut as well. Didn't Vonnegut say something about the Brautigan that, that he was trying? That he was constantly looking to rip something off perfectly, and eventually he ripped off. And I can't remember which book he named. And then he then he blew his brains out. Oh, and really? I think it's I think it's in that collection of lectures that we've talked Bloody about. Bloody hell! Yeah. Wow, really? Well, rip uh, off another uh, writer? Yeah, but not in. He didn't mean in quite that way. You know, it was finding the right writing. So it was finding something, and he fe- yeah. eventually he found the perfect way of of creating this thing. But I mean, that would that's you can't necessarily trust the uh, uh, no. lecture being given to uh, a group of uh, people about to graduate. But it's, I'll, I'll find it because that's very poor reporting by me. 
No, it's all right. No, it was not well reported. Well, the um, thing that I need to get onto Dickens, I think, because I went and did a festival in Port Elliot with Bruce Robinson, and who wrote with Mel and I, and, he, and The Killing Fields. And I, we were chatting a lot about books and stuff, and he, I think he's a great writer. So, I, And he was going, Dickens, you've got to get onto Dickens. And I was like, yeah. It's weird. I because love it. It's so funny. I sort of, I've, you know, I've read a few, and Christmas Carol's always fascinated me, that whole thing, because me and June always wanted to do a version of that. And there's Do you think I'm, you will? I, don't, I think it would be amazing if we did. We did actually have a funny idea to do a thing, a Christmas special, but oh, maybe. But he was what going, Zola? Oh, you've sorry. got to do it. You've got to do Dickens, which I know I have to. But they're so big. Got, I know, that's the thing. It you takes me go. like weeks to do. I wish I was a faster reader, but like because it's so dense as well, like every sentence yeah. has got a little gag in it. That it's you're just like, oh. Like Shakespeare, it's a bit of an effort. You go, I know this is brilliant, but I have to sort of. Slightly steal myself. I have to command Whereas my highest powers. Sort of 60s, the 60s stuff, you know, the beat stuff or whatever, the weirder stuff, or you suddenly. I like quite surrealist stuff as well, so, you know. What other things? What would, I was going to say, do you Flan O'Brien? I love yeah. Flan O'Brien, yeah. So I was just reading The Third Policeman, which yeah. is. Love it. That is such sort of a. blew my mind. Yes. images, which yeah. just within the first 10 pages. It was David O'Dockerty that got me into that. Me too. Yeah. That's hilarious. He's. Well, he but, didn't get me into it. How rude. Wow. I had to get into it myself. He didn't, that think, is typical of he didn't think it was for you. Mm. He had something else for you. He's so <laughs> judgmental. He, he gave me an old copy of when I, what, One of the reasons that I was quite incurious about him was when I first ever did a good, a really good gig in Vicar Street, I did a, uh, one of the best gigs I ever did. When I first started, I was sort of getting my style together. Not really. Yeah. I just sort of went to Ireland. We did a couple of nights there. And I just, I don't know why, but they just responded really Amazingly, and I was doing a show with Julian and Lee Mack and Chris Allison, all fine stand-ups, you know, brilliant, brilliant stand-ups. Um, but just something clicked with that audience. Um, and my mum's Irish as well, my family Irish. But one of the reviewers said, oh, this is like Beachcomber and Flan O'Brien mixed together. And I didn't know what any of that was. So I sort of was always thinking, oh, I should check out Flan O'Brien. And then um, Flan O'Brien, and then David O'Dockett said, oh, I've got some, I'll lend you some books. And then, yeah, it literally blew my mind because... That sort of stuff does blow my mind, that conceptual sort of weird stuff. Just when there's an idea like that, that like I can't quite get my head around. <laughs> just where well, your head pops. That. You just, I love that stuff, you know. Yeah. Well, that's than, what I like about Third Policeman is it's one side of it is it's almost like, when I say a straight narrative, it's not, I don't yeah, mean yeah, like well, that. Yeah, well, it is but kind, it kind of. of. But in, on the way, there are things which, as long as you don't question them too much, you go, this is a, 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 yes. a world where the rules have just been loosened enough yes. to mean that in on each page, possibly, or at least in each chapter, is there's there something, something that occurs in that, about, that happened in your life. Yeah. A bit like Robert Aitman. Something about, about, about a box on the, so small it was on the end of a pinhead or something. Was that I only really think of the box that he goes to you know, when he goes to steal and the brain. It's just some unbelievable images in there. And also, like, I'd never read anything that so well recreated dream-like sensations yes. that I was... I was so shocked that I could identify with it so much. I was like, yes, that is what dreams are like. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly right. Have you read in Lanark um, no. by... Alistair Gray wrote this big epic uh, sort of 
sci-fi-ish kind of book yeah. called Lanark. And in it, there's this bit where, I think I've talked about this on the podcast before and I'm so sorry, I've not read many books, but there's a bit in it. <laughs> Basically, all we've read is George quite Saunders. a lot of Kurt Vonnegut, some Richard Brockton, <laughs> and we will babble on about it forever. But in Lanark, there's a bit where he jumps, the time jumps. Right. And the way that you read it, the act of reading it is so disorientating. Yes. And it's about the only times in my life where it's so successful in doing that to you. Yeah. That you're like, oh, what's happening? Oh, Well, it's interesting with fantasy because I'm obsessed with fantasy and when, when does fantasy become science fiction and when does science fiction, you know, it's yeah. tricky because we, we were going to, I was going to do a thing about this in my last series about um, being a fantasy snob saying, well, I like, you always say you love fantasy but you don't really like, you know, medieval fantasy. Medieval fantasy what do you really of, like? You know, and he, uh, we had a scene where there's a character in my show called Fancy Man, and he's going, "Well, I like some fantasy. I don't really like the Hobbit." And he's going, "Ah, oh, fantasy snob." <laughs> the idea that there are sort of different kinds of fantasy. I mean, me and Julian did like stuff H.G. Wells, and you know, we like the Island of Doctor Morrow. We were obsessed with that. We do like a lot of science fiction as well. We always, and we did do an episode about mutant animals in the zoo. Um, uh, War of the Worlds, we were obsessed with War of the Worlds. We were obsessed with sort of concept albums in the 70s as well. So had the Rick Wakeman, you know, uh, did those sort of weird concept albums, um, like Journey to the Center yes, of the Earth. We were obsessed with all that as well. Um, it's June... very broad though, isn't it? When you say science fiction, you might as well, you know, romance novels may well include Tess the D'Urbervilles yes. and Jilly Cooper. Yeah. And so, and I think science fiction, the idea that you just... Because you're right, some of them are just some. Some of them are actually a plain story, yeah. but with lasers. Yeah, um, <laughs> but there's some horror, them, science fiction, yeah. fantasy, and I think those words put people off quite often. Yeah, because, I yeah, mean, because they, they think I read yeah. proper books. Yeah, and this is silly. This is a children's book, and I know it's a lot of my favourite books ever. Like you know, Lion Witch and the Wardrobe and Alice in Wonderland and all those books are children's books, basically. And, um, and why do you think that is? And I think it's because maybe then they're accepted, you know? I mean, I don't know if The Hobbit or Lord of the Rings is a children's book, but I think that what used to make me laugh is that um, uh, they used to hang out together, didn't they? Tolkien and uh, the guy... Um, C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis, Clive. We were just talking Clive. about that. Fact, I didn't know his name was Clive forever, and it sort of made me laugh. I went, that doesn't work. Clive. But they Clive used to hang Lewis. out together. That's the name of an MP. I know. Clive's not right for a fan. But I love the idea that those sort of fancy men just sort of hung out together in pubs and stuff. But um, there's something weird about... It's acceptable if it's for children, and mm. then it's fine. But if it's not... Uh, Fantasy for adults is very difficult. People get very upset. And do you find that people do that to the stuff that you've made? They sort of assume that yeah. it's for young people or something or that it's easy and yeah. clean. Yeah, I think there is something that kids like about it. When yeah, the Bush was on BBC Two, that was the best thing that could have ever happened to us because it was on at six o'clock and our kids watched it after Neighbours. And then I think most of our fan base was young kids who stayed with us. Because right. when you're a kid, it has more impact. Like, but oh, it's that... not just for kids, really. No, of course not. But maybe it was mm, the tone of it wasn't too dark or something. Right. Whereas the tone of my last show was a bit darker. But it was looked more animated. So I think some people just went, oh, no, I can't look at that. It's too fantastical. But people get this thing in their head about surrealism. And it's sort of, oh, yeah, you just take two words or you take two disparate things. And it's sort of annoying because if it was that easy, then obviously yeah. everyone, it would work. everyone would do it. And it doesn't. But, um, I remember that with like when I first when you first like do doing like open sports, there'd be someone who'd like have a really boring set, yeah. and then they'd have one joke that was like 
had a non-punchline, then they'd be like, bit of surreal for you there. And it'd be like, no, it's not. Know, yeah, it's not like a hat you can put on and take off. That's what it is, isn't it? It's the addition of the word. It's not even a type of fish. Because yeah. if you actually made it a f- uh, some form of a fish that wasn't just yeah. a fish, yeah. then you'd go, oh, this has moved... Uh, this has moved on, but it's just, you know, yeah. fish it's on a bicycle. sort of words. And you go, those, oh, those right. sort of words people used to reach for, like badger back in the day when I was doing mm. starting. It was badger. That know? was probably because Harry Hill used to have badger, didn't he? So yeah. therefore that then led after he had the badger parade. Badger was the... Because oh, that's the hard thing as well, which is your mind. <laughs> very... So nice. I forgot about the badger parade. Harry Hill was Oh, he's amazing. Also, what, what I love about Harry Hill is how much he's been accepted and venerated by the mainstream yeah. on his own terms. It's, it's a delight. Like TV Burp, yeah. I'm always like, this is so exciting. I know. This is prime And then time. when he did his live show, did you see his live show last no, one? I didn't. It was astonishing, but it, he made no concessions for that audience, the ITV audience. He just went, this is what I do. I'm doing this. And a lot of people must have, who like TV Burp must have come along and gone, what is happening? This yeah. is insane. But this is my belief. I do still believe Trojan that horse. anything becomes main. No, but anything becomes mainstream if you put it in the mainstream and leave it there Absolutely. long enough. Absolutely. And so it does frustrate me when I see people, you know, being sidelined by kind of conservative commissioning or whatever because yeah. it's mostly conservative. Uh, but I'm like, yeah. it, because it's it frustrates me. And people because saying I do it's think... cult. I mean, is Vic and Bob cult really? Well, exactly. They're mainstream entertainers, really. Yeah. And then you know, Typhon is that cult? I mean, you couldn't get. That's the most famous sketch show ever. Yeah. So. Why is that? But that is the weirdest show ever. Imagine yes. trying to get that commission. Yeah. No, I mean, and I say that. I did just get well, that lovely, lovely. comedy commission. Did you? <laughs> no, not that. I mean, I did get too serious of that commission. They didn't interfere at all. But, you know. That's Your amazing. series was on ITV? No, no, it was no. on ITV. Oh, but uh, what I mean is people do commission weird stuff still. But. Well, Eric Idle told that story with in John Cleese when they tour around. They sometimes talk about the story where they think they didn't even really know what they had. And they kind of, oh, right, so and you, you always imagine oh, the man yeah, had a pipe. Yeah. So, yeah. so it's going to be sketches. Yes, yeah, sketches. And yeah. songs? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, songs and and it's all going to be it's going to be a narrative. No, it's quite interesting then, because Milligan went... was doing Q at that point. Yeah, already, and he did do most. And you have Michael Benteen's Square World as well, and do things like that. that. Do you think Python Anthony was... Newley and yeah. his Gurney Slade? Have you seen Gurney Slade? No, what's that? It, it was made about 1960, and it nearly destroyed Anthony Newley because he was huge. <laughs> he was so huge. But Anthony Newley is an absolute enigma of a human being and a career. Like everything, like when people say, oh, and of course oh, yeah. he wrote, I'm and feeling Bowie good. Bowie basically doing Anthony yeah. Newley yeah, for like five years. It. Even beyond that, you can hear, even in the 80s, you can I still know. hear little bits of half a pound of tuppany rice. And it's just, but Those Gurney early, Slade. That London what Boy album Slade? is basically, they, they are Anthony Newley pastiches. Yeah. I mean, yeah. they're brilliant, but they are just, you know, see the little man in his little hat. They're just total... Anthony knew it. It's so but That's why David Hepworth's book, 1971, which is, but he considers it to be the most important period of the important year for music and for the album in particular. Yeah. And he says, yeah, at that point, uh, Bowie's Hunky Dory came out. I think it's 71. That would be right. Hunky Dory came out. Ziggy Stardust actually been finished, but wouldn't come out for like over. And it's just this thing where you go, that transition yeah. from an Anthony Newley, you know, London Inside. Boys and all that stuff. 
is that was one of the things that I love, isn't it? I wanted to talk to you about that, but I think we need to run out of time, which is oh. about art books. Because oh. when I looked at David Bowie's list of 100 books, yes. and there were just so many interesting, there's, there's a great book. So he said, these are my 100 favourite yeah, books. Yeah, he did it. This, this was oh, a couple of years ago. That. I didn't That's all right, it's yet. still there. They, they put it on this, this um, virtual lists. book thing. This that lists don't evaporate like Baraka. It'll <laughs> 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 be there for you. Oh, no, no I've it evaporates. <laughs> also, that if it's from two years ago, I won't look it up online. It's no. only fresh things and um, so he wrote his 100 top yeah and it, and it had lots sorry. of it had things like colin wilson's outsider and then oh. it had uh david sylvester's book of france's bacon interviews wow. and it had uh arthur c danto's book uh, uh, about the brillo box and other, oh, all these okay. fantastic it starts off the first essay is about what was it called the innocent eye test you know that film yeah uh, no that painting i think is it mark tanza is yes. that it's a it's a picture of a cow painting of a cow being shown uh, a painting of a cow huh. and it's called The Innocent Eye Test and you know that bit where you realise you're not looking at art properly because I just started reading the book and I'd never noticed that in the corner is a man with a mop and it's just this beautiful thing bring the cow in let's see how it reacts to a picture of a cow may well something will happen so bring the mop and you just got all of the things that how does a cow react to a picture of a cow we only know in non yeah <laughs> yeah just like and what? I'm not sure the eyes are right. <laughs> well, it's hard to get them. Bowie isn't quite an incredible man, isn't he? Because he changed so much. It's very difficult to do that. If you want to leap about from, you know, if you want to change your style a lot, it's very hard now. People like to go, all right, you do that and that's what you do, you know. We were arguing about this, or talking about this the other day when uh, we were talking, discussing this joke on the show that we just worked on and there was a joke that I didn't quite understand about Panda. And uh, the producer said, oh, well, you know, it's the sort of thing you'd say. And I just thought, yeah, but I'm not for no reason. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, God, things I'm like that. insane. <laughs> yeah, that's where you want to go. Well, I am, but I'm not, you know, in I'm that way. I'm <laughs> expressing thoughts and feelings about how I see the world. I'm, I'm not just going, logic what's weird? Yeah, could yeah. you, no, could you just say handkerchief weasel? Why? Well, it's <laughs> what you say, isn't it? You go, You're oh, handkerchief it, weasel. So handkerchief weasel's funny. <laughs> Do you ever feel like you might go and do something that's a drastic departure from things that you've done before? Yeah, I like to, yeah. I think you just I have. have. You've I think become I'm... a song and dance man in an Eric yeah. Idle musical for Christmas. Do you no, know no, what? what I'd like do? to... Um, because I sort of tried to explore the uh, painting side of it and the uh, animation side of it and all of that stuff, and I think what the Bush, you know, I did the moon and I did all those sort of little animated things with my friend Nigel Cohn, who's a who directed Luxury and animated that. And we just thought it would be great to create a whole world out of that stuff. And we did it. But it was so dense and so hard to penetrate. And, you know, a bit like a beef heart album, really, that you need to watch it a few times. And it's only for the, you know, the people that are very interested in that. It's quite specific. I mean, um, you're going to lose half your audience immediately by just making it that densely visual because some people are just like, oh, what's happening? You know, I don't really like those colours are hurting me. Um, it's not set in an office, not sort of, you know, low-key sort of realism. <laughs> that improvised realism, it's quite, it's very specific. So, but it took so long to do those two series. It took five years of my life and I sort of, I feel like I could, I love to do something else, you know, yeah. something completely different. I'm not quite sure. Interpretive dance. I don't know. Cooking I mean, that's show. quite exciting because you don't need to force that kind of thing. No. I mean, I sort of write things and then I try and work out how would be best to make them, you know? Right. I'm sort of writing a film at the moment about a jester and I just sort of think it needs to be very real because it's medieval England and it needs to be muddy and stinky and, you know, and cold. And 
sort of very English. I don't think that would ever benefit from being having animation anywhere near it. Do you know what I mean? Mm. Um, it needs to have a sort of Jabberwocky vibe, you know. It needs to have a. But I wouldn't know how to really do that. But that's quite exciting. That's what's quite exciting about it because in your imagination. Your imagination isn't sort of, um, or is it? I don't know. Whereas your imagination isn't sort of, um, your imagination just imagines something quite freely and easily. And then, I don't know if your imagination is reliant on things it's seen. When you have an idea, your imagination just goes, boom, right, that's how it should be. I don't know whether if you're watching a certain director or if you're watching, or if you're just watching, I don't know, Adventure Time or if you're just reading certain books, whether it will come out in that way. I'm not sure. I'm not sure how much stuff around you influences your pure imagination. Oh, how exciting it is that there will be a generation of children who've been brought up on Adventure Time. I know. Gosh, comics, which is just down the road from the studio. I I take last time had to drag my son in to listen to the recording of all the podcasts. And the treat was Adventure Time books for you. It's oh. remarkable, isn't it? I mean, I think Lemon Grab is probably my favourite character of the last 20 years. <laughs> but that's something, like, it is a thrill to sort of not feel pessimistic about things like that. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? To be like, I mean, we're in this wonderful what's abundance. What's beautiful about that is the tone of it. Yeah. There's something so beautiful about the tone. What I actually realised trying to make luxury was that I had much more in common with Adventure Time and Regular Show and all of those yeah. things than sitcoms that were happening in... Yeah. England, which my show was being put in that slot, you know, yep. compared. But then I felt a lot recently, like maybe the last five, ten years, that there is such a predominance of things in the United States that I feel, uh, yeah. t- t- what's the word, um, s- uh, like more akin, yes. more of a kinship She's with. She's a big fan of the current uh, American political scene. Oh, I Everything love it. she oh, ever it's... dreamt no, of. No, no. <laughs> we better end because uh, we have John Dowie waiting Can I just uh, on this one other book? And we, yeah, we didn't this get to book that. This book is called Widow Basquiat and it's because you were talking about art books. It's a memoir and it's a, uh, by Jennifer see. Clement and she was the, she's a poet and she's the wife of an artist called Clement uh, and it's basically about Basquiat's girlfriend, Susan Malouk, and their relationship. Um, and one of these famous art critics, Rene Ricard, referred to uh, Susan Malouk as Widow Basquiat because they split up and uh, she wasn't married to him, but she more or less might as well have been. And then, um, yeah, Jennifer Clement has written their story, basically, with the help of Susan Malouk, I guess. And it's quite an insight into Jean-Michel Basquiat. If you love Basquiat, that's the book to get. And it's very poetic. Yeah, it's, it's beautiful and it's short chapters. Um, it's one of my favourite books, actually, and I've never lent it. I've, I've bought it about five, six, seven, eight times and always given it away. And every time I've given it to anyone, they've gone, oh, I love that book. So beautiful. And the tone's really beautiful. It's quite unusual. It's quite insightful into Jean-Michel Basquiat. Cause there's still not that much written about him. And I think maybe it's going to take a while for people to realise how relevant or how powerful he was. God, he was so young when he died. Well, yeah. we'll put that in one, either that book or a, a Brautica book, not your copies. We will put in uh, the bag of books that uh, gets given to a different randomly chosen listener at the end of every podcast. Have you read and this book? 
Uh, I haven't read in Waterman and Sugar. You have that one, and you have that one. <gasps> no! really, oh wow! I've only got what some rare Fallout, and uh, well, this is fantastic, brilliant. Are you serious? Um, Thank Noel you. Fielding, the gift giver, the book giver. Them? The uh, I'll tell you what. There might be some comedians who said sarcastic things to him in Victorian lecture halls, and how wrong they were. And also, I don't imagine they'd have read Richard Brautigan. Thanks very much, Noel. Thank, Thank you for listening. If you like the podcast and you'd like to support us and help us keep going and you're feeling a bit flush, uh, we've got a Patreon, Patreon account and for as little as $1 per episode you get exclusive bonus episodes that we make. Uh, we've got a, a box of books that we're going to give away for people so it's worth Every doing. Every week there's someone, another patron sport will get a box of books that don't fit in our house anymore and we don't want to give them away but yeah. we have to. Exactly. Uh, but also you can make a one-off donation of any amount through PayPal if you'd like to. But if you can't, please don't feel like we think you have to. We would just love you to enjoy this. And it's just a case of if you did have a bit spare money to help us keep this going, that would be amazing. But otherwise, um, all the episodes and the reading lists and donation links are at Cosmic... D- Cosmic... Oh, come on. Cosmicshambles.com or cosmicshambles.com slash bookshambles. Or you can leave us a glowing review on iTunes. But thank you for listening to this. I really hope you enjoy it. It's a lot of fun for us to make. And um, these are people who contributed to this Noel Fielding episode. So Nick Sheridan. No. Oh, Jesus H. I'm so tired. Nick Sheridan. Diana Jacinto. Sean Spam McAllister. Great work, Sean. Chris Harris. Simon Coates and George Severs or George Severs in fact uh, David Reed, Sue Holderman Helen L.S. and John Abraham if it's David Reed, my friend's husband hello thank you very much for listening to that Noel Fielding episode and this week the Patreon supporter who wins a great big bag of books is Richard Ash thank you so much Don't forget, if you'd like to check on the reading list for this particular episode or any episodes, or indeed find out other guests that we've had on, the full list of both those things is at cosmicshambles.com slash bookshambles. And since this podcast was first recorded, Book Shambles is now part of the Cosmic Shambles Network, which is home to lots of uh, web series and podcasts and documentaries and live events and blogs and everything else for for curious people interested in science and art and literature with uh we have lots of lots of guests and contributors like robin and josie and noel obviously and brian cox and helen chersky and matt parker and chris hadfield and uh nick offerman and all sorts of people on there so do check that out at cosmicshambles.com and if you've got right to the end and you're just wondering what this weird voice is that's just popped up uh because this is the first time you've ever listened to this show Uh, I'm Trent. I'm the producer. I randomly turn up and deliver exciting admin for everybody. Thanks. Bye. This podcast is part of the Cosmic Shambles Network. Josie Robbins' book Shambles was produced by Trent Burton of Trunkman Productions.